Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Florida is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> well, well you know, I read it on the I read internet. It on the internet. Oh, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Art, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the art in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Hello, Prairie Tales listeners. This is Mary Osborne. It's time for another episode. Today, I am joined by a special guest, Dr. Alana Newman, the Patsy Executive Director of the Warren County History Museum. Dr. Newman, thank you for being a part of our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Well, why don't you tell our listeners a little about yourself and your role as the executive director of the museum? Yes, so um, I am a archeologist by training, uh, specifically classical archeology. span I was previously a visiting professor at Monmouth College. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to meet um, the Warren County History Museum's previous director, Kellen Henriksen. And I worked with him a number of times on my archeological research lab course. And so I got to become familiar with the museum there. Uh, and then when a position opened up, I jumped at the chance to apply uh, because who doesn't want to work with artifacts all the time, especially if your background is digging for <laughs> items from history. Um, so I got the position as Patty Executive Director for the Warren County History Museum in November of 2020, I want to say. And I am the person who does everything pretty much. Uh, I work with the exhibits, so I create and curate exhibits. I deal with the collections, so making sure that the donations that we get, because we do get a lot of artifact donations, are organized and cataloged in a way that we can research them and talk about them in the future. Uh, I have a colleague, Alyssa Whitaker, who works with me on events. Um, specifically for, um, well, not only, but including the Great Nicola Magic Fest. Um, so I have a good time just uh, playing with the artifacts and creating exhibits and informing the public about the really rich history of Warren County. And it is a rich history um, as we are learning, um, just developing this podcast. And the museum is such a wonderful asset uh, to Monmouth, and we are so grateful that you're a part of our community. Thank you. Now, I know that one of the big events at the museum is the Magic Festival that centers on the Great Nicola. 
and that will be the uh, the subject of, of today's interview. So um, could you tell us who uh, the great Nicola was and his significance uh, to Monmouth? Yeah, so the Great Nicola is the stage name for Will Nichols, who was born in Burlington in 1880 uh, to a Scottish immigrant father and a Michigan-born mother. Their family name was originally McNichols, but they changed it to Nichols when they moved. Um, when Nichols was four years old, his family eventually moved to Monmouth, um, where his father started a photography studio. So his father's primary job was photography. So if you ever get photographs from around this time, and we have a couple in our collection, it'll say Nichols at the bottom. So that's very exciting. That's um, uh, Nicola's father. Um, but Nicola is famous as a magician. I'm going to interchange between Nichols and Nicola. I hope that's okay. I just mean the magician here. Um, he got his start as a magician in 1898 when he was 18 years old. Uh, he accompanied his older brother, Charles, at the Trans-Mississippi and International Exposition in Omaha, which is essentially a huge fair. And although he was initially there to help his brother Charles with his um, photography booth, he ended essentially being talent scouted um, one day and was asked if he knows magic. And he's like, yes, I actually do know magic and ended up performing at the exposition. And that really encouraged him to then um, get ready for the Paris exposition in 1900, um, which was essentially another world's fair that lasted for about seven months. Um, and Nicola raised money for his trip to Paris by hosting magic shows in small towns, including one at the Monmouth YMCA. He didn't actually take much with him, just two uh, two suitcases, which contained his entire act. But it was well worth it when he uh, traveled around um, the uh, Midwest and East Coast. He made enough money to go to this exposition and he serendipitously ran into another Monmouth native, Louise um, oops, sorry, Louis Fuller, who is the internationally renowned um, dancer. And she took him under uh, her wing and helped him book shows in France during the exposition. And when Nicola returned home, he was flush and proud of all he had accomplished there. And he began touring on the vaudeville circuit all over the United States. And as he traveled, his renown grew and his act would bring in very large crowds. He would always be featured in the local newspaper, and there was always this really great buzz. He was really good at creating buzz, which we'll probably chat a little bit about later. Um, but throughout the early 1900s, so about until the 19, late 1930s, uh, Nicola was not just popular in the U.S., he actually became popular worldwide, and he had multiple world tours and performed in China, India, Egypt, Australia, and Europe. But unfortunately, during one of these world tours, uh, when he was really at the height of his career in 1938, he had a really devastating loss. Um, he was in, on a ship embarking from Singapore, and they were just a couple miles out from the harbor, and it hit a mine. Because remember, this is the start of one of the world wars, and um, so... People are starting to defend themselves. And the explosion destroyed about $100,000 of Nicola's equipment that he was never able to salvage. And he really wasn't able to make much of a comeback. He did do a couple of USO tours and smaller town tours um, for a little while. But then he passed away in Monmouth at his home on February 4th. Uh, I'm sorry, February 1st, 1946. Wow, I can't imagine sustaining that kind of a loss. And I know that his brother, I, be I believe it was his brother um, who was also involved 
um, to a certain extent in magic and was even accused of being a German spy. Is that correct? Yes. So his brother, Charles, he goes by multiple stage names. Um, he starts off as um, Von Ark um, and then ends up changing his name because of that, because it sounds too German and becomes the great Chalbert. Um, and he doesn't, he travels a little bit with Nicola, but he does try to do a separate thing. He doesn't really want to encroach on his brother's success. Um, he Charles is also a photographer, so that's his main profession. He kind of does magic on the side. And towards the end of his career, um, he becomes this uh, spook show entertainer. Um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with spook shows, but they're a combination of special effects and magic tricks that are supposed to scare your audience. Sometimes they're not, I wouldn't say risque is the right word, but they're more adult performances. Um, influenced by the spiritualism movement? For sure, yes, definitely. Okay. Okay, and we're getting off the script a little bit, but, you know, two historians talking to you. <laughs> uh, I think our listeners will forgive us um, or forgive me <laughs> yes. um, for going off script. But and you've spoken to this point already uh, somewhat, but how do you think Nichols uh, Monmouth upbringing shaped his career? I really think that growing up in a small town, it it helped him appreciate the support that a small town audience can give a performer and the impact it can have on your career. So as I mentioned, before he sets off for the Paris Exposition, he does a lot of small town shows and he starts at the Monmouth YMCA. And even after he makes it really big, he remembers the success that he's had in small towns, how welcoming they are. And he continues to perform in small towns throughout his career. He doesn't just play big name cities. He goes everywhere. And he comes back to Monmouth a number of times. So it does seem to have a really positive experience that he performed in Monmouth, that he was so supported by the people of Monmouth. And it stuck with him so that, you know, he becomes a big star and he's like, no matter what, I'm still going to perform these small towns because they want to see these things. Right. Yeah. Going back to his roots and um, mm -hmm. I imagine that Monmouth, as well as other small towns, they really appreciated that sorry, he didn't forget where he came from in essence. Yes. From whom did he draw his inspiration as a magician? Well, um, as I'm, as you've mentioned already, his brother was also a magician, but um, his father, John, was a magician as well. Um, he was a photographer full time, but he did do some uh, mag magical acts in Glasgow before he immigrated to the U.S. Um, and his stage name, uh, John Nichols, was Nicoli, which is where Nicola comes from. So he takes this name from his father after his father passes. And so he's definitely influenced by that. His father is also really, I wouldn't say tough is the right word, but when Nichols comes back from these, uh, the World's Fair in um, Omaha, and he expresses this interest in magic to do it full time to go to Paris and continue with this. His father's like, practice, 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 practice. And they really instills that uh, the importance of practicing. Um, there was also a rumor that Nicola's grandfather, so John's father, was a magician back in Scotland, but that seems to be more likely a story crafted to generate buzz about this magical dynasty rather than being a true story. Um, and the other major contributing factor in Nicola's 
magical life would be Harry Houdini. Um, there was a rivalry between the two men. So Nicola did illusions, but he was also an escape artist, much like Houdini. And um, they were always trying to one up each other. Uh, so <laughs> there was um, a performance that Nicola did where he attempts to escape from a large steel milk can filled with water, which was modeled after Houdini, one of Houdini's acts. So they're always sort of one up and come up with these tricks and then the other sees it and then he tries to top it. Okay, I can kind of see that kind of East meets Midwest and mm -hmm. uh, trying to sustain that that interest in magic. So my next question deals with the the art of magic and sleight of hand kind of in general. What do you think the public found appealing about the art of illusion? So I think that there's a universal sense of curiosity in human beings. I'm kind of going pretty big here. Um, but that the art of illusion really applies to this curiosity that we have. It plays on our understanding of what is and isn't possible. And even today, I, you know, I see a magic act and it's even, you know, just on TV, I don't see many magic acts in person. And even though I know TV can edit these scenes to death, I'm still amazed at what happens. I think, how did they do that? Um, because I think there's this need for us to understand how they did it, but also we don't wanna know how they did it. And I can only imagine how much more impactful seeing these magicians in person, because some of these theaters, yes, he was playing to big theaters, um, but he played smaller local shows too. And, you know, how that sort of intimacy with the audience is really important, especially with this type of curiosity and mystery. Um, and I also think that the historical context is important here. And I'm sure that you know, listeners will forgive us for this. But, um, you know, Nicola comes to fame in the early 20th century. And so not only do we have, you know, First World War, Great Depression, um, these magic shows, I think, offer an outlet of escapism from your everyday life. A lot of negative things are happening. People are not experiencing maybe the best things. And when you see an act that maybe defies possibility and allows you to escape for a little while, I think it does inspire a sense of hope of possibility, um, even just a little bit, right? Like it, I'm not saying that magic is changing lives here necessarily, but I think that it draws them out of their day and maybe helps them see that things are possible. Maybe there is a positive thing on the horizon. If that man can make an elephant disappear, maybe I might, have a successful crop this month. I don't, I don't know, but something along those lines. No, well, I think, I think that's a great point. Um, kind of man defying the elements or having mastery mm -hmm. over nature. I think, I think that's probably a universal theme. Um, and I liked your observation about his intimacy with the audience. I think that's something that might be more difficult for, you know, modern, a modern audience to understand. I think it's something that we appreciate and we, once we experience it, it's something that people articulate later on. But if you know you're watching a, um, a performance on television, we are just that far removed from really getting to experience the the performer on a, on that um, more intimate level and kind of reading their emotions. And there's just a whole other layer there that you're you're missing with with watching it on online or on television. Yeah. Oh, and I will say also, and I just thought of this, um, you know, as I mentioned, you this early 20th century and around this time, um, you have a lot of 
excavations in Egypt. Sorry, this is my archaeology background coming in. And, and you have the discovery of King Tut's tomb. And we can see, especially in the magical world, that there's this interest in Africa and Asia and these sort of, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but these feed into the acts. And so, you know, we had Egyptomania in the early 20th century where everyone was you know, we had songs about King Tut, we had architecture copying Egyptian pyramids, so, and uh, temples. So it makes sense that these performers are playing on this zeitgeist here, this what's popular at the time. And it, I think it adds an element of mystery too, because, you know, Egyptian things are very much ancient mm -hmm. and they were still figuring things out. So I think there's a level of, um, curiosity in the um what's the word i want not the other but something so different that we're not used to and also the spiritualism that we mentioned earlier yeah the exotic i hate to use that word for for it but yeah exotic i guess is the right word but yeah i think that plays a big role that is really interesting uh, bringing up uh kind of the egyptomania because i remember my grandfather's yearbook from even the kind of mid to late uh, 1930s, because it was renamed in the 20, 1920s, around 1922, the Scarabius. So the Scarab. Oh. You know, so even even schools were kind of buying into that and, you know, cashing in on the popularity. Of they were. We have a number of yearbooks from local high schools here, and they have images um, in Egyptian style decorating the yearbooks. So it just, it's crazy. It's so crazy. I love it. It's, it's really interesting. You've already mentioned how um, Houdini and uh, Nicola had this, this rivalry going on. Um, I've read, I think it was in one of Jeff Rankin's blog entries that uh, Nicole was known as the the Dean of American magicians. So how did how did he set himself apart from Houdini um, and from other local uh, magicians? So what what made him especially popular? So we yeah, you mentioned Houdini and I, I mentioned him already a little bit their rivalry, but we often think of that of Houdini, right? When we think of early magic, we think of Houdini. And I really as the name Dean of American Magicians is appropriate because Nicola was huge. He, he, I, like the Lady Gaga of the music world. Um, I can't think of another good <laughs> metaphor there, but he was a big deal. Um, great is not his name for no reason because he was one of the largest magical touring shows in the world. Not every magician was going to almost every continent to perform shows, but Nicola was. And it wasn't just that you were seeing magic, you were seeing these really elaborate shows. There was elaborate scenery, there were elaborate costumes, and he was creating new magic acts as well. So you knew that you would see something really luxurious and grand, and you knew that you would see something new at some point. Like maybe not every act was new, but a number of them were. Segments of his show included impressions of great magicians from faraway locations, which I think is where he really sets himself apart. Other magicians at the time imitate other magicians and create characters, but nowhere near the extent Nicola does. He has a number of these impressions that he does, and they typically are magicians from faraway locations like Egypt, India, and China. Um, so there are these personas that he adopts during the act, and it's not just his persona, it's the entire set, right? He has his, his staff of wit and assistants of wit 
which there are many helping him. There's a, like a, at least five sometime on the stage that are also adorned in these crazy costumes. And he would become the royal Egyptian sorcerer. Um, one of them was Prince Ramses Abbas. I don't think that was a real person um, as far as I was able to tell. But some of them were actually real sorcerers from magic history. So one that was actually a real person was the royal Chinese conjurer uh, Ching Ling Fu, where he adopts this persona to perform the celestial mysteries of China. And um, Nicola had actually met uh, Ching Lin Fu at the Omaha Exposition. And he saw him perform, and he was clearly really influenced by him to create this character, which I think is just really interesting that he has these shows within these shows. So... He really goes, I think, above and beyond when he does these performances. And there's a real level of showmanship here. So he does these elaborate shows, but he also does these sort of one-off acts like Houdini does. Like he'll hang from uh, a building and escape chains for like his main act that he'll do for at 7 p.m. on a Friday. I'm just pulling that out of there for, for an example. But so you get this sort of mixture of really big shows and also more sort of spectacle, one-off spectacles. And I think that that makes him just this really ambidextrous performer. So my next question, again, going off script a little bit, but something you said prompted question. Given his popularity, did he go to lengths to make sure that the cost of a ticket was affordable for some of these small towns? That's a great question. I don't know the price of his tickets off the top of my head, but I I would say as a educated guess, based on my knowledge of Nicola and his career, that he, depending on sort of what was happening at the time, so like I think when he's a bigger act, I don't think they would have been unreasonable that you couldn't have been able to afford it because he is selling out these shows. Like they, they're full houses. So they have to be, to some extent, reasonably priced for the people at the, during this time period. Later on, though, after he has that, uh, the mine hit a ship and he loses a number of his items, he does perform smaller towns and he does do USO tours and he does those USO tours for free. He doesn't charge any money when he does it for the troops and for the military. But beyond that, I, I'm not able to answer with 100% accuracy. Uh, well, no, I appreciate your, your taking a stab at it. Uh, well, um, and, and kind of speaking of, of tickets and kind of his paraphernalia that he would have had, um, costumes and so forth. What kinds of artifacts does the museum have in its collections that pertain to Nicola? And do you have a favorite? Yeah, so we have photographs of Nicola and his family. So his brother as Von Arks and his dad performing and just a number of photographs. We have playbills from his shows, newspaper clippings uh, for when he was in town, posters advertising his performances. Um, and I want to point mention one of my favorites for the, of the posters. It is an advertisement for a escape trick that Nicola does where he is hung upside down, chained, and he has to escape. So Houdini does something similar, but it, it's a really popular trick of the time. But what I find really oddly charming about this poster is that 
you would never know that's what this is without reading what it says because there's this caricature of a devil this mustachioed devil with a pointy red hat and a red cape just grinning at you and then the text and it's just it's quite charming and it is kind of a signature of nicholas he likes to have this devil sort of near his face Often when you see an image of him on a playbill, something is often like a devil shadow. Um, but I just think it's really simple but impactful. Like, I would want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We also have equipment from some of his illusions, uh, including what's called the water bowl illusion. Um, and these are two tin bowls. And the purpose of the act or the essentially the quote unquote illusion is that Nicola will take water out of the, the bowls once they're filled, but they never empty. So he's never able to lose the water. We also have another piece of his equipment for an illusion that's called the fishbowl illusion. We sadly don't know how this works um, because we don't have any documentation about it. And we typically do have a number of, um, we have another of items that actually explain how some of his tricks work with photos, or at least give you an idea of what's meant to happen. Um, but we don't have one that talks about this. So it's a, it's a glass bowl and it's filled with these teardrop shaped pieces of paper that are stitched together. And there's also a metal panel on the back that's removable. So it's some kind of disappearing trick, but we're not quite sure. So it's a fun little mystery. If there's any magicians listening and you have an idea of how it works, please let us know because I would love to know. But I think my absolute favorite item, which is not as uh, elaborate or extravagant as the other items, it's more everyday, but I think it's just really fun to see is his desk chair and his desk because I just like to look at it and think, you know, he would just sit here coming up with his illusions, finalizing his performances, what his set was for whatever performance he was planning. It's it's very humanizing sort of man behind the mask as it were. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because we have uh, Judge Stewart's uh, desk here um, at the at the Stewart house. It's, uh, I think, probably a partner's desk. And I like to imagine uh, Judge Stewart and his son, William, at different times they did practice law together. Maybe they sat across from each other in the conversations Aww. they must have had or the conversations they had with their with their clients. Um, but you're right, kind of just it humanizes. Uh, yeah. them, but, right. So what would you like people to take away from Nicola's story? Well, personally, I admire his determination and tenacity because, you know, I don't know many young 20-something kids or even eight an 18-year-old who would be approached and say, you know, Magic, yeah, I know Magic, I can do his show. Just, I think that his belief in his talent is really impressive. And also the fact that he just decides to go to Paris leave home with two suitcases, no money to like go on this trip. But I'm like, I'm going to make it, have the confidence to be like, I'm going to make it along the way and then I'm going to go there and I'm going to be successful. And when he does this, when he goes from the Midwest to the East Coast in order to make money for the Paris exposition, he advertises his own show, he sells his own tickets and then he performs. And this is only in the time span of a couple of days. Like these are not long stays. So the does his like desire to become a magician and to succeed i think is really impressive because i think it's a really big gamble you know 
show business is not an easy business. Um, it's also, you know, you're one in a million, maybe not quite at this time, but still, you know, vaudeville is a really big deal at this time. You're competing a lot with other performers. And so it could have blown up in his face. It could definitely not have worked out, um, but it did. And I think that's really impressive that he just sort of believed in himself at 18 and he managed to accomplish this. Definitely. Now I want to circle back to something you mentioned in the, in the beginning of our conversation uh, when you were talking about actually how you um, arrived in your position as the executive director. So you mentioned the previous uh, executive director, Kellen Henriksen, in an episode from our first season of Prairie Tales, we discuss one of our podcasters' connections with Nichols' uh, elephant. Nisi, I might be pronouncing, mispronouncing that, but I know Kellen was very in, involved in the, the hunt for, <laughs> for Nisi's grave. And so um, for those of, those of you listening who may not know, um, would you explain uh, how and why uh, Nicola acquired his baby or his dwarf elephant? <laughs> Yeah, so it was later in his career, um, sort of midway through, and I don't know the precise date, but it was, he didn't start off with an elephant right away, but Nisi is a dwarf elephant, um, and she, uh, she was, a, according to legend, <laughs> was a gift to Nicola from the Indian Maharaja Nisam of Hyderabad. Um, and of course, we have to take that with a grain of salt because like most magicians of his time, he likes to embellish the truth. Um, so it's more likely that Nicola purchased the elephant um, for a part of his act. And then he took him and uh, took her around him uh, around um, while he traveled for his tour. Nisi was uh, used in the vanishing elephant trick. And that was where he would make Nisi disappear. It was an extremely popular trip trick. Every time um, Nisi was with Nicola for his tour, the papers would go wild. He would, they would say, there's an elephant in town. We're going to see a magic trick with an elephant. Everyone get ready. And there was also um, really good publicity for him, Nisey was, because he would bring Nisey and he would kind of parade her through the town. So people would see, oh, what, the an elephant in town? What? What's going on? So it was great publicity for him. And from all accounts, Nicola really cared for Nisey. Nisey would stay in his hotel room during the tour. He would be, uh, she would be in his bathroom. So they were, it seemed like they were quite close. He was, she was pretty much a pet for him. Um, but yeah, Nisey was a really important part of his show. And fun fact, Nisey is the only elephant to appear in the U.S. Capitol building. And this happened because Nicola was giving a show in D.C. And uh, it decided to bring her to the Capitol building. She ended up being sort of an icon for the Republican Party for a little while. Of course. Yeah. Well, we've had cows on the White House lawn. Why not an elephant? Yeah. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. great. So the, the nearby town of Aquaca um, erected a monument uh, commemorating the elephant Norma Jean. I don't know if you've been to Norma Jean's the the memorial. I've not. Okay. Well, so that's that's something you'll you'll need to do when you have a free moment. Yes. Um, are there are there plans to memorialize Nisi? Not presently, but we should get a petition going uh, because she's, I mean, she's still, as far as we know, as you mentioned, she's still here. Kellen Henriksen did, we don't ever like to say anything with certainty in archaeology, but 
likely found uh, Nisey's resting place uh, east of North 11th Street using um, ground penetrating radar, which is essentially an X-ray um, of the soil. So she's still here. So why not put up a, a monument commemorating her? She's just really cute, too. She's just like this adorable little elephant that seems very sweet apparently also another fun fact she apparently really liked kids and so people would be able to feed her and she would like you know want go near them because she knew they would feed her um so it was quite sweet well i know you have great things planned uh, for the upcoming magic festival could you share with our listeners uh, everything that you have in store Oh, yes. So we have the Great Nicola Magic Festival for the first time in, I think it's been, what, three years almost because of COVID. It will be October 7th and October 8th. So on the Friday, October 7th, is our After Dark performance. So that's 21 up because there will be alcohol there. And it's um, on uh, Mex on Main. And we have a main show by Jeanette Andrews, who is a top-notch performer. I'm so excited for her to come. She's performed at the Smithsonian, um, the, for Cooper Hewitt, for the International Museum of Surgical, uh, Surgical Science, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Um, she'll be doing her main show and then a Q&A and also some strolling magic. We will also have strolling magic during After Dark by Iowa-based magician David Casas and local magician Stu Yeager, who if you've been to the Packing House when they do their magical performances, he often performs there. And then on Saturday, October 8th, from noon to 8 p.m., this is our main day, our family day events, but it's for all ages. It'll be a great time. Um, there'll be main stage magic shows. We'll have a children's magic show, a matinee magic show, and a finale performance. And there will also be a children's magic workshop for you know, the little ones to learn how to do some magic. So if they want to become little great Nicolas, they can. There'll also be a history lecture on the great Nicola. And um, we will have, um, so not just some amazing strolling magicians there too. So we'll have TJ Regal and St uh, Stu Yeager strolling around, giving some close-up magic. You'll not only be dazzled by magic, but you'll learn something too, since we have the workshop and the uh, lecture. There will also be uh, a photo booth, some balloon twisting, face painting, and arts and crafts. And you can find out more about this uh, specific schedule of events, uh, performer bios, and purchase tickets on our website, wchistorymuseum.com. And of course, I know that the museum is currently open to the public. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the current exhibits? Yeah, so we're open Tuesday to Saturday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And we have a number of new exhibits. We actually have two new exhibits out right now. Um, the first is Fashionistas Through the Decades, which is all about women's fashion in Warren County um, from 1860 to today, which is, which is so much fun to see the different styles that women wore then. I can't imagine some of them in this heat, I have to be honest. Uh, but um, they wore them. So if you want to see, you should definitely come check this out. Um, we also have the exhibit, The Children Before Us, which was done by our former uh, assistant director, Will Best. And it uh, explores what life was like for children in Warren County at the last turn of the century. Uh, we also have Timeless Typewriters, which was put on by our interns, Larissa Pothovin and Grace Pasiglia, uh, which shows all about 
typewriter history in the area. And you can see our awesome collection of typewriters and play with a couple as well. We have some that you can practice your typing skills on uh, that were uh, donated to us by Professor Brad Rao from Monmouth College. Um, an upcoming exhibit for August is Ed Powell, a matchstick master. And this is all about the models made by Ed Powell, who was a farmer from Alexis. And when he retired, he decided to make models out of matchsticks, which they're just fantastic. There is, I think my favorite piece is a violin, which is playable, made out of matchsticks. They're the most detailed things. They're really fascinating. And then some other events we have, we have um, upcoming on July 9th at 2 p.m. We're showing in honor of the 4th of July, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's free um, and we'll have some popcorn and refreshments there for everyone. So I hope people come and enjoy this. I'm a big fan of classic Hollywood, so it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. So come and see it. It is a great film. I can attest to that. You gotta love uh, uh -huh. the chemistry between Gene Arthur and yes. um, James Stewart. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap things up now, but thank you for joining me today, Dr. Newman. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, send me an email at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And that friends is where this tale ends. Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie and you too might hear a tale.